to 47, but I'm really only going to park on 41 and 42. That's where I'm pitching my tent this morning. I'm going to leave it up to you in the end uh, to figure out whether this passage is describing or prescribing life in community based on this passage. Of course, I have some ideas. I'm not sure that they are the gospel. Um, If something is described, maybe the force of the description can be prescriptive. A prescribed something may be do this. It's a commandment. You you should love one another. You don't have a choice in the matter. But when something historical happening is being described, does that mean it is the way of living that, what is being described? At any rate, Whether it's described or prescribed, I see it as an invitation, not as an obligation. I think God works a lot more by invitation than he does, you better do it or else, kind of approach. It's an invitation from God to do life to the fullest under the tutelage of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus came, he did three things, basically. First thing he did was to proclaim the arrival and the accessibility and the availability of the kingdom of God to those who were considered outsiders of that kingdom. And he actually called them blessed kind of people. Blessed are the poor of spirit, blessed are those who mourn, the persecuted, etc. Those are the kinds of people that were outside of the kingdom in Jesus' day. And he came proclaiming the kingdom of God to them. Jesus also came teaching the way to live in this kingdom of God. I, I see everything that Jesus taught as Peculiar to the way of life inside the kingdom of God, where we, all of us, exist. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Wake up with wrinkled clothes or wrinkled faces or whatever. I thought of wrinkled faces when when you said that this morning, Ryan. There's no fix to that. Turn the other cheek. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Um, Self-denial, cross-carrying, being born from above, from God. All of that is teaching that uh, that goes hand in hand with what the kingdom of God is like and is about. The other thing that Jesus did, he, he manifested, he made real and visible the kingdom of God. And he did that through signs and miracles. 
healings and um, turning water into wine, that kind of thing, in the power of the Holy Spirit. I was sobered when I was looking at, at what Jesus did by, by proclaiming the good news when he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This word repent just gave me a sense of deep reflection all week long. And uh, I see it as a very, very profound kind of a thing. It's a courageous thing to do when we repent. It is, it's an offer to take your mind and how your mind has been shaped and focused, the worldview that you have, and kind of turn it upside down and begin to think differently about the way you're thinking, about who God is, about what this Christian life is all about, about the ways of the kingdom. If you do that intentionally day in and day out, it is a very profound thing to do. Because what you think determines how you live. How you think determines how you live. And so what Jesus did, his disciples also did. They proclaimed, they taught, and they did signs and miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they saw that the kingdom of God was present. And one of those examples is from uh, Acts chapter 2, which is going to come up on the screen here momentarily. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. I'll read those verses. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word of God? Some people begin this passage at 43, some at 42, some go all the way to 37. I'm compromising going with 41. So those who welcomed the message, when Jesus welcomed people, it, it means that he, he had fellowship with them, he befriended them, he became very intimate with them. So those who welcomed the message in the way Jesus welcomed people were baptized, were submerged, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. 
They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being delivered, rescued, brought into the kingdom, those who were being saved. May God bless the reading of the scriptures. I thought this morning, please sit down, I thought all week that I was going to deal with the whole passage, and um, I wasn't quite sure what to do with it, because it's, it's, it's such a familiar passage, like, you know, these are the five functions of the church, some people would say, or this or that. I, somehow my heart never went in that direction at all, so I ended up, like by Thursday, saying, I got to do something, got to put this thing together somehow. So I started writing, and, and whatever came out of my heart and my mind, that's what you're getting this morning. So, uh, and I, uh, after five pages, I said, I need to stop. So I found myself at, verses, at verse 42. So I stopped. So I'm not going to be able to deal with the rest of it, maybe another time. So I've just told you what no speaker should tell you, but there you go. It says thousands in, in verse 41, thousands in Jerusalem welcome the message. And Jerusalem at that, at that time of the year, uh, around uh, Pentecost and, and the two months previous to that, would swell with, with people, visitors from all over the world. And... Um, Many of the Pharisees, many of the Sadducees, as uh, Acts later tells us, were among some of these people that were being uh, converted. Acts 6 and 15. And then they get baptized. And so when Jesus intersects our lives, they were baptized, and so many deep things happened in that baptism, more than you and I can ever imagine. People, it says, were baptized in the name of Jesus. Well, just as Jesus taught them in what we call the Great Commission. Let me paraphrase it. I've been given say-so over... Every, um, this is not my own paraphrase. I'm borrowing. Uh, it, it, it says, I have been given say-so say over everything in heaven and earth. As you go, in your goings, at home, in travel, in business, wherever you are, in your goings, in your goings-on, Make apprentices to me among 
people of every kind, submerge them, baptize them, submerge them into the Trinitarian reality that I have taught you, that I have brought to you, that I have made myself an example of that life of the Trinity. Submerge them into that reality. And lead them into doing everything I have told you to do. Now look, I'm with you every minute until the job is completely done. So this is not a formula that the one baptizing says, or even the one confessing. It is an announcement of the allegiance to this Trinitarian God that calls us into experiencing the reality of the community of the Trinity. The reality of the presence of the kingdom of God. To do life with him. To be ruled over in our own lives by him. To pledge our allegiance to him. Jesus told his disciples, do you remember, that when he is taken up and that the Holy Spirit will come upon them, they were going to be able to do greater things than he was able to do. Well, Jesus never had 3,000 people saved in any one day that we know of. And here are the disciples imbued by the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit falling upon them are able to do greater than Jesus was able to do and Jesus predicted that reality for them. There is no better strategy. There will never be a better strategy. There was never a better strategy for the flourishing of the church than we have in that passage. Proclaim the kingdom, make disciples, and live in such a way to demonstrate the reality of that kingdom. Best strategy for church planting, for living, for multiplying disciples. The results of this are people, new people, wanting in. And that's the natural outcome of that kind of proclamation, teaching, and demonstration of the kingdom. People want in, and they, then you begin gathering them into communities or societies of Jesus. Ad infinitum. Repeat till Jesus returns. Now sometimes the strategy gets interrupted when disciples to Jesus apprentices to Jesus, apprenticeship to Jesus gets omitted in the process. Discipleship to Jesus is learning to be with Jesus and to be like him in our daily life. The church, Dallas Willard says, is for discipleship. And discipleship is for the world. 
Discipleship is for the world. That's why in the Great Commission, as you go, make disciples. You go at home, you go at work, in the schools, in the offices, in the factories. That's where disciples are made. So here's the first thing that they do. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They did all that they did with this kind of devotion. A devotion is, is steadfastness. You take crazy glue and you bind two things together and they are glued on forever. You can never separate them. In fact, you'll break the wood before you can separate them at the joint. So that's the kind of crazy glue attachment to Jesus, to his church, and to the ways of the kingdom that they devoted themselves to. They attached themselves to that. They gave their constant attention to these things. Their constant attention to these things. They gave their hearts, their minds, their souls, their physical means with love to everything that they did as a corporate body of believers. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were a learning community. A disciple, by definition, is an apprentice who is learning to be like his master. That's by definition what a disciple is. He's an apprentice. I like the word apprenticeship because it has, it has a material kind of a, a aspect to it. I, I grew up in Lebanon. Some of you may know. And left school when I was 12. And my brother said, Here, you need to learn a trade. He had a friend who was a woodcarver. He said, I'll introduce you and, and you become an apprentice woodcarver. I spent five years watching and learning, cleaning the shop, bringing dinner, whatever I did. And I became an apprentice woodcarver. That's the kind of thing that discipleship is. A disciple is a learner. What did they learn? And what did the apostles teach? Well, everything Jesus commanded. Now, that's a tall order. Do you know lots of churches who do that? Everything that Jesus commanded? They taught the Holy Spirit reminding them what Jesus taught them. He was the subject matter of their teaching. Jesus was the subject matter of his own teaching. He proclaimed, he did the signs of of, uh, his own kingdom, his own teachings. What did Paul teach? He tells us in, he tells the Ephesians that when he was with them, he taught them Jesus. It says in 420, uh, he's chiding them for um, thinking that they could go, go back to the old way of life. And he said to them, You did not learn Jesus this way. He taught them Jesus. 
says, you were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. They also taught the Old Testament scriptures through the lens of Jesus. Well, that's what Jesus did. All scripture points to me, he says in, in John 5.39. He says, you study the, um, the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scripture, scriptures that testify about me. Jesus himself gave us his Christocentric hermeneutic. Sorry to be using such a big word, but it just means that you, you interpret the scriptures through the lens and the life of Jesus. He gave us this way of seeing the whole of the scriptures. When he opened the eyes of Cleopas and, and his friend in Luke 24, Jesus tells them about himself starting with Moses and all the prophets and in all of the scriptures, he showed them that they are about him. So the apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit, take Jesus' teaching as their act of devotion and study it and they pass it on. And those who welcome the message sat at their feet and learned. And that's the posture of discipleship, just like Mary did when she sat at Jesus' feet. Now, some learned better than others. Some of us learned better than others. Some learned to live out the teachings, the learning Jesus the kind of learning that Jesus prefers, living it out. Some learned only intellectually, without ever coming to terms with the reality of the teaching. At times the apostles were like that. And at times you and me are like that. The scripture says, if, if any are hearers of the words and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. They see blotches all over their faces, dirt everywhere, but they never go and clean it up. Those who act on what they hear and know actually do the will of God. So uh, devotion means this to me, asking myself at least every few days individually, am I a doer of the word? Or am I only a hearer? Am I a doer of what I'm learning? Am I acting on what I know? Am I living faithfully to what I have learned? In fact, the word faith or belief or trust is based primarily on acting on what you know. You have faith when you have acted on what you already know and put it into practice. You have lived faithfully what you know to be true. And corporately, those of us who are in the tent, who 
You can tell Jim that I've referred to the tent at least one time. (laughs) Those in the tent who have received the message must examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Test ourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Paul is saying, maybe even tongue-in-cheek. Maybe even rhetorically. But, but there is a way that the church is called to be the disciples of Jesus, the corporate body of disciples of Jesus. And that is by testing ourselves periodically and to say, are we on the right track? Are we still adhering to the things of Jesus? And then they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship. And the word is kinonia. Uh, Lots of people pronounce it koinonia. That's the Latinized way of pronouncing the word. Um, I've never heard a Greek say koinonia. I've always heard Greeks say kinonia. So I'm going to say kinonia, fellowship, which means it is communion. Communitas, if, if you prefer the Latin. What is common to a group of people or people who associate together around the same objective is their fellowship. That's what fellowship is. The churches of Macedonia and of Achaia were pleased to have fellowship to share of their resources with the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. Romans 15, 26 tells us. They helped generously those in need. They shared what they have with other people. That's fellowship. 2 Corinthians 8, 4. Any way you wish to slice this word, you'll come up with some kind of participation in what we hold in common. It is participation in the same common goals that Jesus gave us. Ah, the scripture tells of those common goals in, in so many different ways. I've chosen a few. It says, one faith acting in obedience on what we know. One baptism, being submerged into the Trinitarian reality. One Lord. One body. We're not like a body, we are a body. We're not like a family, we are family. There's a difference between the two expressions, I believe. One spirit, one God, one guiding wisdom, one God and Father of all of us, all being children of God in the family of God. Came to mind and I wrote it in the margins all for one and one for all. Anybody knows where that comes from? The three musketeers, yeah, yeah. That's pretty well fellowship. All for one and one for all. In the tent, if one gets wet, everybody gets wet. 
One kingdom. One king. And then the daily meals. They had daily meals together. In homes. Such a common practice of the day. Jesus did this with his disciples. They were constantly eating together. It was common among guilds, groups, associations, families, to have common meals together. It was the normal thing to do. Even extended families, the way they, the way they built their homes was conducive to this kind of common meal. First, the home of mom and dad is, is built, one room. Then, if they wanted to add, they either went up another story, and that's when the kids got married. They, they lived with, on top of the, the parents' home. Or they built them on the side, or they began to form a kind of a U-shaped um, plan. And then the common meal would be cooked in front of the, of, of the compound where all the families live. That's, that's just the way they are. And so the tables that they shared, this fellowship that they share, shared, became the table of intimacy, the table of worship, the table of inwardness, the table of learning Jesus. They devoted themselves to this kind of way of being and to the breaking of bread. One element of sharing the common meal was remembering and reenacting the Last Supper that Jesus had with them. First Corinthians 11 tells us that Jesus took bread and broke it and gave it. And he says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. It's a celebration of the cross and the new covenant when, when God made all things new in Jesus. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And in this brokenness is our healing. In this brokenness is our healing. I can't, I can't imagine when they sat around and they were beginning to remember the brokenness of Jesus in the broken bread, how they felt, what they thought, what they said to each other, how they comforted each other. Did they lament? Did they cry? What did they do? It was so real to them. And the healing that they received from it, Isaiah 53, 5 says, by his wounds, we are healed. All of it is true. And then and now when we celebrate, we are reenacting the praying, the taking, the breaking, the receiving, and the distributing of the Lord gifts to us. And then also in verse 42 it says, and they devoted 
themselves to the prayers. Now, prayers here has the definite article in front of it. The prayers. Some people would argue, well, it was just prayer in general. Some people would argue, well, it was really specific prayers. And I can't see, Danny, for the life of me, why it's not both. So that's what I've come up with. It's both. They devoted themselves generally to a posture of prayer, but that posture of prayer had definite prayers attached to it. It wasn't just they came together and extemporaneously prayed, although they, they did that very often. Paul prayed extemporaneously all the time. Am I pronouncing that right? The early church was a praying church. But what did they pray? They would have prayed as they were used to praying. The message they received, the message that Peter is preaching and and these people received and then they continued in this, it was preached at the temple. At what time of the day? At nine o'clock in the morning. What were they doing at 9 o'clock in the morning? Being accused of being drunk. What was that hour about? And do you remember throughout the Gospels? And it was the first hour, the second hour, the third hour, the fourth hour, the fifth, sixth hour of the day. They were marking not only the time of the day, but the specific prayers that they prayed at these times of the day. Any devoted Jew, any faithful Jew, would have taken their prayers very seriously and would have stopped three times every day to say their prayers. They would say, first of all, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And Jesus taught us with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So the disciples and the apostles and the church did these prayers on a daily basis. In the morning they preceded that prayer, the Shema, with what is called the Tefillah, which is a recitation of 18 benedictions. By the end of the first century, I don't know how many there were at that time. It may have been 13, 14, 15. But by the end of the first century, the Tefillah included 18 benedictions that every Jew, every faithful Jew, would pray in the morning and in the evening. In the middle of the day, they didn't pray that, the tefillah. They devoted themselves to these prayers. We know for certain a few things about this rhythm of prayers. Jesus and his apostles prayed the Psalms like any faithful, devoted Jew did. You would read in the Psalms, morning, noon, at night, do I lift up my soul to you, O God. In Psalm 119, it says, seven times a day do I praise you, O God. Now, some people will want to take these kinds of, uh, these kinds of numbers, Emily, and, and make them uh, symbolic. Uh, why not take them literally? Why not stop seven times a day and praise God and and make it part of the way you live as a family, as a common life group, as a church? 
So we know the Psalms were the prayer book of the church. They have been all, all these 2,000 years. We know Jesus, like all devout Jews, would recite three times the, the Shema, and then what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. The earliest book of instructions of how to live the Christian life is called the Didache, the teachings. It was written around the end of the first century. And in that manual, it is teaching the church how to live on a daily basis. And one of the prescriptions is to recite the Lord's Prayer every day, three times a day. When the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, Jesus' answer to them, he said, say this. The word say could easily have been translated recite. Were we not so afraid of getting into rote and, and things becoming too mechanical. But you can, you can pray extemporaneously without any feeling and any spirit. And you can pray these prayers with a lot of feelings and a lot of spirit. I wrote down this prayer here, which is paraphrased by, it's a paraphrase by Dallas Willard. I've tried to memorize it, but I know the I know the original one, so I recite the original one. But every once in a while, I look at this because it is so practical in its way of saying it. Dear Father, always near us, may your name be treasured and loved. May your rule be completed in us. May your will be done here on earth in just the same way as it is done in heaven. Give us today the things we need today. And forgive us our sins and impositions on you as we are forgiving all who in any way offend us. Please don't put us through trials, but deliver us from everything bad. Because you are the one in charge and you have all the power and the glory too is yours forever. Which is just the way we want it. That's the Amen, which is just the way we want it, which is just the way we want to commit to it. And so the church prayed these prayers together. So I tried to come up with three lessons from all of this, and I started writing the first one, and I said I better stop with just one, because there's... There's way too much there to go any further. So here we go. Jim ended his last message last week uh, with being anchored in Christ. And your second, our second uh, statement of, of vision and goal and mission in this church is, anybody knows what it is? We're anchored in Christ. Way to go. Like, I've never asked that question in the church and, and people were able to actually answer it. Gathered in community. That's what I want to focus the last few minutes on. We 
are a community of love. This is what you are seeing in Acts 2, 41 to 47. You are seeing a community of love interacting around Jesus, one another, in love. We, Rock Hill, started six years ago with this DNA in mind. Disciples of Jesus doing life together, anchored in Christ. Our CLCs is our, com- is our intimate community. There are even smaller units, smaller communities, one-on-one, one-on-three kind of people that, that is going on all over the place in this community. We are, we are a teaching community as well. The whiteboard and, and other things that we do. And we are a worshiping community. And we exist in all of these communities. We don't just experience one kind of community. All of them are community. Now this is not human genius. This pattern of community is sourced actually in God himself. Who is a community of love. God is one, but not in the sense of a singularity. God is one in the sense of a community. One community in three persons. A community of love. We as individuals and we as corporate group are called to be imitators of this community kind of God. As God's beloved children. And and we live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is good internally in our body and for the body. In that sense, we are imitators of God. I'm stating so many things I have no idea the depth of which. You can go with them. The church, in all our wrinkles and brokenness, we are this community that is patterned after the very first community, the community who is God, the community of love. One of the common, one of the common phrases that stuck to the church from very early on is this one. Oh, how they love the brethren. Oh, how they love the brethren. Peter says, above all, maintain constant love for one another. Does he know something we don't? For love covers a multitude of sins. Love is a commodity that should never be in short supply in our midst. Jesus says to his band of, of disciples, and sometimes not so loving disciples, by this the world will know you are apprentices to me by your love one to another. 
by loving each other, you are showing a primary way of loving God. Love like youth fades. In Hebrews, the writer says, we are anxious that you keep on loving others as long as life lasts so that you will get your full reward. That's not sobering. I don't know what is. One of the most profound comments I told you just a minute ago was, um, look how they love each other. I, I thought it was in the Bible. That's how ignorant I, I, I was until I looked it up. How they love one another. And it's not in the scriptures. It comes from a spy that came to spy upon the Christians. He was sent by Emperor Hadrian. He was sent to go spy on the Christians to see what they are, what they lived like. So he pitched his tent, second mention of tent. He pitched his tent next to the Christians and started studying them. And he noticed a whole bunch of things. He came back and reported to the emperor about these strange and crazy Christians. And the summary that he gave to Emperor Hadrian, behold, how they love one another. Wow. Behold how they love one another. Now, if I didn't know any better, I would break out in a song which spoke the truth to me with the group that first paved the way of me coming to Christ 46 years ago. That's three times your age, Danny. The song is archaic now. It still rings so very true. It's called, We Are One in the Spirit. As he smiled, some of you connect with it. You grew up in old Baptist churches. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. That's John 13, 35. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. We will guard each person's dignity and save each person's pride. We will walk with each other, we will walk hand in hand, and together we'll spread the news that God is in our land, in Lawrence, and they'll know we are Christians by our love. Here's the thing though, love as a way of life is tough, as we all know. I was wondering, Ryan, are we destined each Sunday morning to be crappy about some things? Like, can we, can we, can we deal with the issue of crappiness once and for all? Or are we destined on a daily basis to have a 
if we're not morning people and have had two pots of coffee, coffee, are we destined to be crappy people? Or can we put to rest that particular crappiness in our character once and for all? We're all, yeah. We're all touched by that, aren't we? Here's the thing. Love as a way of life is tough. We maintain it with a great deal of intentional, specific, targeted, actionful kinds of things we do. By definition, love is the will to good. Love is the will, followed by actions, to produce something good for another person. The good takes on myriad of expressions. Caring, serving, helping, honoring, forgiving, teaching, fellowshipping, communion, prayers, all of it are expressions of this goodness, which is love. The hub of the Christian God is love, and from that love flows everything else, creation, beauty, meaningful living. The hub of the church's life is love, extended sacrificially, preferring others, thinking the best of others, doing all things without complaining. Oops. Taking in instructions, considering others above ourselves. This genius that drove the early church in their community was love. And that's what Acts 2.42 to 47 is about. It's love being expressed out loud. The North American Mission Board came up with a, with a slogan six years ago. Matt, do you still remember it? Love loud. No, you never got exposed. Thank God you were never exposed to that. They received so much criticism for that expression, love loud. But that's, that's a really good expression. We ought to love loudly so that others can see and glorify God with us. I pray it will always be so. We started six years ago with that impetus, with that DNA. And I want to tell you that Carolyn and I and Noah, we have experienced this when we've come to be in your midst. The acceptance, the love, the, the goodwill that you have shown to us. That you extend to everybody. But I pray that we'll continue with us, to perfect this love until we reach the full stature of Christ. You may be new here, perhaps as Carolyn and myself are, but you'll find love in this tent, third mention. You'll find love in this tent. You'll find all the intimacy that you need that you want in this life. To be able to do life in the kingdom of God with a few other people, with a church that is bent, that has this in its very DNA, gathered in community 
a community of love. So I invite you, pitch your tent next to ours. You'll be like that spy, that spy for Emperor Hadrian. And you will be able to say, look how they love one another. Pray with me. So many truths were said from the mouth of one valuable servant. Yet this isn't in any way about the messenger, but about the message. The message of Jesus to his disciples, love God, love others. Gather in communities of love. Perfect this love among each other. And the world will know that you are my followers. May these ever be true at Rock Hill and every church in Lawrence that claims the name of Jesus and proclaims him. Amen.